Welcome to The 12th Story, a book discussion podcast produced by Cincinnati's Mercantile Library, where readers gather to engage, connect, debate, and discuss. The Mercantile Library is 181 years old and is the literary center of Cincinnati. Throughout the year, the Mercantile Library hosts authors and speakers, book discussion groups, and other civic events. We are a working library with more than 90,000 books available to members. We are located at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati and online at mercantilelibrary.com, and we always welcome new members and guests. Joining us today in the lecture hall on the 12th story of the Mercantile Building are Brian Isaac Phillips, the producing artistic director of the Cincinnati Shakespeare Company, and Professor Miev O'Leary, a professor at Xavier University in what department? In the English department. In the English department. Today we are here to discuss Station Eleven by uh, Emily St. John Mandel. Now we've talked about her in the past. Today we are here talking about the fact that plays are central to the theme. Shakespeare's plays are central to the theme of this book. Um, we are going to talk about everything in the book, so there's your warning. Um, there will be spoilers, and we are particularly excited to discuss this book because Emily St. John Mandel will be at the library on September 15th. So thank you both very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Now that we've decided that this is about the plays, that means I am the third most qualified person to speak. <laughs> <laughs> we have, tell me, uh, why don't you guys both start by telling me what it is you do, uh, especially as it pertains to Shakespeare. Uh, and I love that this book begins with King Lear. I'll go first. Uh, I am an English professor at Xavier University where I teach the Shakespeare classes. Um, I studied Shakespeare in particular, but more generally early modern literature in graduate school at Penn State. So um, while I teach Shakespeare primarily, I do also study and write about his contemporaries, other dramatists and poets of the time, everyone from Milton all the way back to Wyatt and Surrey. Wow. Right. Uh, and I'm the uh, producing artistic director at the Cincinnati Shakespeare Company, um, which is a, we're a resident ensemble theater company bringing Shakespeare and the classics to life for audiences of all ages. Um, we are one of the few Shakespeare companies uh, in the world that has actually completed the 38-play canon, uh, which I myself have also done as uh, actor and director. Uh, I've been there for 14 years um, and um, have put on quite a few of his plays. <laughs> I would imagine. Uh, how does King Lear sell typically? My guess is that that's a good that's a good production. I, it is. Uh, I think it depends at uh, what time of year you place it, um, because it's not necessarily the right show for May. Uh, but in the deep dark of winter, it's a pretty good uh, uh, sell. The book actually begins on the stage uh, of a production of King Lear. Mm -hmm. Did you find Lear to continue through the book? Did you find Shakespeare to continue through the book? Or do you think it was just a, a little device? Uh, I think it's uh, central to uh, what she's doing uh, by specifically using uh, Shakespeare. But um, I, I think that the, the book is such a wonderful exploration of so many different uh, forms of art that uh, with you know the, the film career uh, of uh, the actor playing Lear at the beginning with the graphic novel industry with, you know, it, it's, it's beautiful. And I love that Shakespeare is the very 
specific dramatist that is included with all those other cr uh, creative art forms. And uh, for me, you know, I, I believe that Shakespeare is uh, universal. Um, I believe that he is uh, a wonderful source for creating empathy uh, in the world, and uh, that is why his productions have lasted for, uh, you know, 400 years, uh, over 400 years, and um, that's why I think she chooses to uh, make him uh, the dramatist that we meet at the beginning and the one that continues on into the, the end of days. I, I'm going to interject here and say that I'm the second most qualified person in the room because, and I must admit, apologies to Emily St. John Mandel. I have not had the opportunity to read the novel, but I'm going to comment a little bit more abstractly on the idea of uh, Shakespeare as an author who can be endlessly manipulated and adapted to allow other authors to comment more generally on the nature of art, on the nature of legacy, um, performance, reception, etc., and also also, he's an author that we as readers or as viewers are far more open to seeing adapted than maybe um, even Jane Austen, uh, probably one of the second most adapted authors out right. there. Uh, there's a certain level of loyalty and expectation that we're going to see a recognizable Lizzie Bennet that when you trespass against that, people get a lot more up in arms than they do when Hamlet is in the rock band or something. Right. Um, so I think that Shakespeare is this kind of endlessly malleable uh, subject to use to examine art. The, in, in the book, they, um, this is a traveling group, and they perform Shakespeare. They also perform music. And it, you know, they're 20 years post this. It, it's really not an apocalyptic book, but um, it does happen to be set 20 years after a flu that wipes out... 99 point something percent of people on earth and they they came to the conclusion that uh, a set, there's a couple central theme one is uh, survival is not enough uh, which I think speaks to art and the second uh, a major tenet is people want the classics people want when it's 20 years and you just want some art they what they wanted it turns was Shakespeare which doesn't surprise me. Would it surprise, if you can imagine this being real, could you imagine Shakespeare still playing 20 years from now with a ragtag group of... Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely. One of the, what struck me about that is there, it, it uh, reminded me of, um, there's a, there's a movie, it's a silly summer movie called, I think it was called Reign of Fire, about dragons and the end of the world and whatnot. But what was great about it is that you see these people after most of the world's population has been decimated, and they're doing a stage production of The Empire Strikes Back uh, for the community that night. And it was just, <laughs> it struck me as this brilliant idea that we would find a way to continue to tell ourselves the stories and the myths that matter, and that storytelling is essential. And that's why I love this so much, is that idea that it's great that it's Shakespeare, but ultimately it's wonderful that it is storytelling that is absolutely essential to our makeup as uh, human beings, and that that is going to continue no matter what, no matter how dark uh, the days become. Yeah, I do believe s storytelling is central to the human experience. I, I think it's, um, it's, it's not... It, it's it's the meal. It's not the dessert. It's, Absolutely, it's vital to our existence. I think um, for our souls, and I think probably for survival. But um, 
It's also linked intrinsically to history. Um, history is a form of storytelling. And so I can imagine in, in a lot of these post-apocalyptic narratives that are really, really popular today, um, very popular television, very popular film, you have some new concern with how to record history from this point forward. Mm -hmm. And I think that that links into both storytelling and art as a kind of concern to maintain our humanity in the face of whatever, the zombie apocalypse, the flu, the plague, what dragons. have you, dragons. <laughs> um, so I think that that's, that's part of it. But also it's, it's a 20 year gap, you said, 20 yeah. years after this flu. Um, that's not very long. And so much of Shakespeare has really passed into common language. Uh, and common parlance. He's such a quotable author and so many turns of phrase. I mean, even in the midst of one of the most bizarre presidential election seasons we've had, you still hear him quoted all the time. So it's not hard for me to imagine that memorial reconstruction could kind of work after a 20-year gap and Shakespeare might be where they'd go. I, I, I think you're right. Um, and, and I like that you mentioned uh, that reign of fire because the... the the survival is not enough is obviously not from Shakespeare, but from Star Trek. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, is, right, yeah. But it, and it's more than, I love this one line, I wrote it down um, by a tuba player who said, you know, we're 20 years later, the world's kind of a storm. Mm -hmm. I mean, nothing's, nothing's easy. And he says, the thing with the new world is that it's just horrifically short on elegance. Mm. Um, so I do think people do need, is, is storytelling and survival is, is, is great. But every once in a while, we need some elegance in our we life. We need beauty. Why do we, why get up? Why try to keep fighting unless there's something beautiful in the, in the world that you're fighting to, um, you know, either attain or maintain or, or to give as a gift uh, to your fellow man. I mean, I think that, you know, life is nasty, brutish, and short, but also beautiful, which is why we put up with nasty, brutish, and short. And again, that that is always part of these post-apocalyptic narratives. I mean, there's... There's an episode in The Walking Dead a couple seasons ago where a guy has like some great Dutch master's paintings hidden in his office because he could get at them and wanted to preserve them. Every single one of these post-apocalyptic narratives has a point where the survivors turn to art, to something creative. And that's the sign that, you know, here's the new hope. Here we will continue. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think that survival is not enough and we're short on elegance. We must create it. And, you know, I think it's... You know, King Lear is a very um, um, dreary uh, existential uh, play uh, of is Shakespeare's. Is this the promised end? Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's not a pick-me-up. <laughs> so the fact that that's sort of where we're at at the beginning, and then when we get into the future, we get 20 years down the road, that this troupe is performing A Midsummer Night's Dream, that this is the play that... Um, they need to do because people also need to laugh. You know, comedy always gets a little bit of a, a short stick because people think that it's easy, which, by the way, it is not no. easy. It is ten times harder. Uh, it's than, harder to read. It's harder to teach yeah. than tragedy by far. Um, and I imagine to write. harder to yeah. perform. <laughs> I mean, the only thing that's easier about it is uh, gauging the audience reaction because you get the instant gratification of a laugh landing. But then you have to deal with the fact that if a laugh doesn't land, that you just laid an egg on stage. However, uh, I think the idea that um, 
laughter is so important and it is so powerful and that that's what this troupe, and not that they just do Midsummer, but that they're, when we meet them, they're trying to bring that laughter uh, into the world, into that community that they've gone into, I think is really saying something and offsetting that with Lear as the, as the opener. Um, is at least how I interpret it. Yeah, and that's really interesting to me for a couple of reasons. I, again, I agree, comedy far harder than tragedy. When I teach Shakespeare, we start with tragedy and we end with comedy because it's, it is much more difficult to, to pull apart. Um, and part of that is how historically embedded it tends to be. But um, Midsummer is, is part of this group of comedies that Shakespeare wrote that um, Northrop Frye called the green world comedies, where you start in some sort of society, in a court, in a city, in a town, and something is wrong. There is a problem in the town. And the young lovers, the young characters, flee the town. They go out into the green world, the forest, in the case of Midsummer Night's Dream. And out there, the restrictions of society that created the problem in the first place are gone. They solve things, hilarity ensues, and at the end, there's the restoration of order as they return to the town and you have your happy ending, generally with marriage. And that's an interesting formula to use for a conclusion of a somewhat post-apocalyptic novel to say that we had a society, there was a problem, we were kind of exiled from the society, and we have built something new out here. Maybe that's, no, that's reading fantastic. a little bit too yeah. much into it. Again, no, uh, haven't well, actually read the novel. But. It, this book ends with they're, they're in this abandoned airport mm -hmm. um, which uh, talk uh, about a symbol of an established society yes, yeah. right? right which is completely um, right so mm -hmm. it, and there's planes on the tarmac and uh, the fuel is all gone but there there's a tower and 20 years hence there's these people and they're it's growing increasingly desperate in the airport um, there's marauders out and mm -hmm. from the top from the tower they can see a grid of lights, like somebody, someone, somewhere mm -hmm. that they can see, that they can walk to, mm -hmm. has created energy mm -hmm. and light. So that would be, you know, talking about like the return. Society. I mean, mm -hmm. it's exactly, they've gone out in the world, they've struggled. Um, mm -hmm. I, well, that's interesting. Because that's exactly, you know, that's how it ends. Yeah. Um, and you don't know what's there. And maybe there's going to be a book. Maybe there's going to be a station 12. <laughs> well, yeah, you still got to come back and have Theseus and Apollo to get married. That's and, yeah, you know, right. we all know how that ends. But. I, I like that uh, in this book, one of the, you know, a couple pieces of art survive. You know, Shakespeare and Station 11, which is this, it's a graphic novel written by Miranda. Um, and she has no... There's, a, there's, a, there's your Tempest reference. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> right. there's, there's, she has no uh, commercial interest in this thing. She's only, only making it for art. And she mm. doesn't care if anyone ever sees it. Okay. And it survives. Mm -hmm. um, and Shakespeare survives. Mm. Now, Shakespeare did want people to see his work. And, mm -hmm. he was, and he did want to make as much money as possible because... He was a human being. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> theater is a business. Yeah. Yeah. He yeah. was in the business. And he was a, a theater. He, he held stock. You know, he was a business partner in the theater as well. So, so I, I like that contrast. So a very commercial artist who happened to be fantastic. His work survived, and a and a we don't know how good Station Eleven is, but we all we know is that it's pure. In that no one, she didn't really intend for 
people to see it or, right. or for it to do well. Well, the other thing I love about the, the graphic novel being part of what survives is, uh, I, I think Scott McCloud might be the, mm -hmm. the author's yep. name, Understanding Comics, yep. uh, and it was his idea that, you know, comic books and the comic strip and the graphic novel goes back to the beginning of storytelling with mm -hmm. sequential yeah. art mm -hmm. and, and that basically comic books are the uh, cave paintings. That's what it evolved mm -hmm. into. And so to think that the graphic novel is sort of something that would survive because it harkens back to our earliest attempts to tell a story I think is fascinating. Right. Yeah. I, did, I just read Hamlet as a graphic novel because... I thought I should try different types of reading. We should come see Hamlet uh, <laughs> sometime because yes. Shakespeare should be seen, not read. Well, he was, it was, it was I good. I have seen and read. I've seen and read. Seen and read. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> or, 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 yes. <laughs> I think we were all clear now. <laughs> Speaking of commercial interests. Yeah. Right. <laughs> what, um, what, did you find yourself, so you're reading this book and you are the, you are the producing artistic director. Did you see yourself figuring out how you would produce? Hmm. A stage adaptation. A stage adaptation of, of Midsummer Night's Dream with nothing. No electricity. You're under the moonlight. So we do that now. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we have our... Uh, our theater is uh, a year-long, year-round theater, uh, and we do have a permanent home and a main stage, but we also do a free Shakespeare in the Park summer tour summer. that's wrapping up uh, right now. And that's what we do. We take Midsummer, we take Romeo and Juliet, and we have nothing, uh, and they go out and it's under the stars. Uh, you know, we try to start so that sunset is happening, because in the dark we'd have a problem, but um, that's exactly what we do, is figure out how to do these plays uh, with very little in an outdoor setting. So uh, I could absolutely see how to stage uh, Midsummer uh, for that for that trip, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> what else did you learn from this book? Uh, you know, for me, uh, I fell in love with this book. I, uh, I, I read it faster than I've read anything in the last uh, couple of years with uh, my schedule being as busy as it has been. And it just felt like every single thing that I love, whether it's theater, whether it's film, whether it's graphic novels, uh, she was touching on those. And every scene, uh, every chapter felt haunting, uh, and, uh, but beautiful at the same time. And uh, I just think that I'm very lucky uh, to have uh, come across uh, this book and, and this author. And I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't thank uh, the wonderful uh, staff at uh, Booksellers on Fountain Square because it was a recommendation uh, from one of their uh, staff members that said, you need to read this book. That's and uh, I, that's the great thing about bookstores and libraries is that you can still get that recommendation from somebody about here's something that you should read mm -hmm. and it's not an algorithm that has decided it for you. Uh, it, is a, it is a human being, so. I, again, apologies for not having read the book, but I found out about the book and I purchased the book after attending a conference last spring. Um, I like to call it the coolest weekend of the year, the Shakespeare Association of America conference, um, in which I participated in a seminar on performance studies. Now, this is not a new discipline at all. It's new to me. I'm beginning to dip my toe in the waters. It's a slightly new scholarly direction for me. Um, performance studies focuses not on what I'm already really comfortable with, which is commenting on adaptation, right? 
what were the choices the director made, how does this reinterpret the story, blah, 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 but instead on what it means to actually sit in a theater and to see a show happening live in front of you, the very kind of eventness of actually being at a performance. The ephemeral nature, the interaction that goes on between audience and actor, all of the kind of um, ancillary materials, the program notes, the advertising and marketing, all of that all together. Now, performance studies as a discipline has taken a big scholarly interest, the Shakespeare version of it anyway, in novels like this one <laughs> that make performance of Shakespeare a central narrative element to them. And so I read several different scholarly papers about this novel. Uh, and that's what... You've really got to read this book. Me. I know, I know. <laughs> do, you, do you know what I do for a living? I read I, for a I, living. I, I do get it. So, it, it starts with a, you know, he dies, and then there's a man sitting in the audience, and mm -hmm. he's trying to figure out, well, well can, I, can I go up there? Mm -hmm. He's, like, he is an EMT. He's, mm -hmm. he's, he is, he's, he's thinking, oh, that's not... Is that part of the... Is this... He's trying to figure out, is, is this is happening it, in the play? Is this snuff film or is am this, I? Mm -hmm. Am I, all right, he's sick. Can I go through that wall? Like, it, mm -hmm. which is kind of that experience yeah. as, as a viewer of a performance. Well, and, and she's also doing something very interesting in the beginning. Uh, now, I read this when it first came out, so if I, if, if I Me too. disconnect here, uh, my apologies. Um, but it is she creates a choice mm -hmm. in the staging of this King Lear that is not in the text. It is a directorial choice. So, and that is that he has, uh, he sees the young version, the child version of yes. uh, Cordelia oh. uh, when he is getting ill. Okay. Um, so, and that actress, the child is the Miranda who later on is part of the Shakespeare troupe. So she is put into this production of Lear. Her real name is Miranda. She's the one who writes the comic book. Uh, or no. she plays Miranda. <laughs> Sorry, right, right, right. No. So Miranda is the one that writes the comic book, okay. which is the um, love interest of the actor playing Lear. Mm. The girl who is playing the child version of Cordelia ends up being uh, in the troupe uh, oh, doing okay. Midsummer uh, later on. Okay. But what I found fascinating, uh, and I'm sure I made that clear as mud, um, what I found fascinating was just the, the idea that she... She did a directorial choice. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just we're doing Lear or it's Lear and it's used for effect as a background thing, yeah. but actually how that production chooses to stage that play has an effect on the outcome of the entire novel. Absolutely. So. That's Kristen. The, the yes. girl is Kristen, who does become mm -hmm. central um, mm. in the... It, it, it's really... I mean, it's a fun book, uh, but it's also a good book. And... A, a thoughtful book. I, I've, I'm so excited to have her come, have the author, um, Mandel, it, and it, she's very clear, St. John is just her middle name. <laughs> so, because no, no library knows where to put her on the shelf. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I think it's a terrific book, and it's a, she has a terrific voice. Um, I went and picked up a couple of her other books after reading this one, and have been able to uh, also read her, uh, I think it was her debut, The Last Night in Montreal, and... Yes. Um, just the evolution of her voice from that book to this one is really uh, uh, terrific. So, how uh, how did you like last night, Montreal? I, I liked it very much. Um, I don't. Uh, I didn't fall in love with it the way I fell in love with this, but I could see, I could hear uh, the uh, beginning of uh, a voice that would 
lead to this. So um, I always love to, if there's an author that I really start to enjoy, I like to try to read as much of their body of work as mm -hmm. possible because I think it's fascinating. Same way with Shakespeare. Yeah. Uh, if you go through his plays in a chronological order, sort of how their voice, uh, how their art matures mm -hmm. as uh, the more they practice at it. Hence, so. hence my, uh, my crush on Kate Atkinson. Oh, I, yep. like, I've now read, I think, every word she has ever written. Uh, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> I'm getting to the point of, like, I should stop. Right. <laughs> it's that good. Um, last one. Uh, there, there was some talk about, I was reading a lot about this book, and Shakespeare having lived through his own apocalypses. I'm not sure exactly how to pluralize <laughs> that right. word, uh, that he was living in a time when a lot of people died at mm -hmm. least once, maybe twice, a couple plagues. Mm -hmm. um, did, is that a stretch, or do you think that there might be something there? Oh, I think there's absolutely something absolutely. there. Yeah, I mean, they were... So the fear of death becomes uh, a very real and present thing on a regular basis, I think, when you're uh, um, faced with it on a... a that large of a scale. It's not just something that will happen, something that happens to somebody else or something that will happen to me someday. It's every day, I imagine, you're waking up with the fear that this right. is the day you get sick. Mm -hmm. um, and um, Or I, your partner or, or your, your kid yes, or your absolutely. mom. It's all around you. Um, so I think that that informs any art that's being created uh, in that sort of an atmosphere and that is the, the time that Shakespeare was living in. I mean, I, I think that the theory, one of the theories, one of the thousand of theories, uh, is that uh, Shakespeare probably fell in love with theater because a traveling troupe came to Stratford when he was a child because they had to because the theaters were all closed in the summer because of the plague. Mm -hmm. So without the plague, we never would have had Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. So something great comes out of it. So I, I, I'm sure that that is uh, part of figuring out um, this idea of the times they are living in 20 years from now and how Shakespeare is the artist that they choose to uh, present. Yeah, and I, I mean, there's so much one could say. I don't think that you can overstate the significant impact on the general mindset of the plague in early modern England. Um, a couple of things. First of all, not only would the fear of death be incredibly real, but the actual experience of death was much closer to your average Jane than it is for us today. Um, the way death was handled, the way bodies were buried, etc. It would be something you'd have very intimate experience with from a very early age. Uh, so there's that. Death is just kind of a companion, and you see this, uh, you know, recreated through the Ars Moriendi, through the, um, the art of dying and a lot of the artistic representations of the time of, of memento mori. Uh, most people, if they were wealthy enough to have a study, would in their study have some sort of depiction of skeletons or they would even have um, either a sculpted or an actual uh, skull to kind of help them focus on their mortality to make them live a good life, et cetera, et cetera. Then there's the fact that medicine, I mean, medicine was nothing back then to right. what it is today. I mean, we didn't even have empirical science, so our understanding of how the body worked and how to treat it when it 
got sick was terrible. So if you got the plague, it was essentially a death sentence. And if your partner got the plague, you would be shut into the house with them uh, under quarantine. So that was also a, a death, death sentence. sentence. Yeah. Uh, and they didn't understand how it was spread. They had no idea how to treat it. And their notions of physiology were generally really mystical. Um, you have four humors in your body, and they must stay somehow in balance. And if you are sick, it's because they're out of balance. So we have to get you balanced, maybe by bleeding you to let out your excess blood, right? There was a lot, most of the medical treatments at the time actually did far more harm <laughs> than help. So illness was a catastrophe in a way that it just isn't today. I had my own fun little um, hospital adventure two weeks ago. My appendix rebelled. Um, I've, I've since had it had it removed. Uh, but, you know, I was sitting there in the hospital in terrible pain, trying to console myself by thinking, if this was 400 years ago, I'd be dead. So, yeah, you know, right. not so bad. Not That's so true. bad. I can put up with this. But, um, I mean, I, I'm getting kind of into the weeds here, but the idea of students have a very hard time relating to that because we don't have a contemporary analog for that anxiety about uh, mortality and the fact that you get sick, you start coughing and sneezing and you maybe pass out, that's it, you're dead. <laughs> they right. don't, they can't relate to that. And I can imagine that being such an important animating force for a novel like this um, and a really significant connection to Shakespeare's own logic. I, I, that's interesting, I hadn't thought of it. Well, I actually, I have thought of it. I think the fact that we don't really walk with death today like we did, forget 400 years ago, 150 years ago. Right. Well, we uh, try to ignore it. We, right, <laughs> I mean now we, it's like not even part of our lives at all and like a lot of people I had an experience where I thought, oh I might not, I might not make it through mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. And then I did. It's absolutely the best thing that ever happened to me. Like, so I love that these people, these people are living with death. Yeah. Um, which maybe makes them appreciate art a little bit more or, or need it mm -hmm. a little bit more or, or realize life is short. Right. But life is... Nasty, brutish, and short. It's not, it's not mine. Right. Famous <laughs> philosophy quote. Uh, Nasty, I wish I could brutish, take and short. So. I spend most of my time uh, do quotes by people that are smarter than me. <laughs> hey, I agree. Which makes you smarter than most. <laughs> <laughs> I think, too, there was, a, there was a moral edge to illness in the early modern period where if you were sick, you know... It's probably because you did something wrong. Maybe well, yeah. God is punishing you. And that ends right. up playing a huge part in the book because the, the marauders, sort of this, this rebel group outside, mm -hmm. their mentality is based on we survived. Mm -hmm. we, are, we were chosen yep. to survive. Right. So therefore, mm -hmm. our way is the right way. Yeah. Um, and how we want to do things is the way to do things. Yeah, it really kills any sort of sympathy for the ill. To be, to be poor in the early modern period was considered morally repugnant. Um, to be homeless was morally repugnant. Uh, and to be ill was morally repugnant. So it's a very different kind of society. Uh, and I can definitely imagine that playing a big role here. Yeah, You are more of an optimist than me. I'd say it's a mostly different form of society. I know. <laughs> I, know. I was saying that and thinking, oh, I don't know. Uh, this has been great. This is a Shakespeare talk. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so let's do a little bit of advertising. Tell me what's going on. 
with Shakespeare. Um, what's going on with Shakespeare? Well, we're actually get, so we do half Shakespeare and half not Shakespeare. So uh, we are closing our Shakespeare in the Park tour and getting ready to open the Diary of Anne Frank, uh, a newer adaptation of it um, that opens uh, first right uh, the Friday right after Labor Day, um, and. So we're doing that, followed by The Elephant Man, and then Much Ado, and then the whole season continues. And all the while we're doing this, we are building a brand new uh, theater uh, facility on the corner of 12th and Elm and over the Rhine, which is uh, 11 months uh, away from opening its doors. So um, producing plays and building buildings. That has got to be a stunning year of busyness. Yeah, that it is. <laughs> and, and will be. And so. Yeah. All right, tell me about, tell me what's new at Xavier and your department or what you're teaching or what you think of the kids today. Oh, gosh, don't. <laughs> I, I don't play that game. I don't play that game. There's too many people already doing that. Um, I, a couple of new things at Xavier. We have a, it's in its second year now, a new program, a first year experience program that's been really exciting and it's really kind of altered the way that we approach our incoming students. Um, it's got many different arms. The, the one that I'm most invested in is this first year seminar course that all incoming students take. It's special topics, so you get to teach all sorts of different things. Mine is about villains and vigilantes, so obviously mine is the best course. Um, we read V for Vendetta and have so much fun. But it's been a really neat experience, both for faculty and for students. Uh, and so here's my little recruiting message. You high school kids thinking about whether or not you should stay in Cincinnati, whether or not you should uh, consider Xavier. It's become a place where even more so, um, we're incredibly invested in helping our incoming students thrive. And that doesn't mean hand-holding, that means teaching resilience, but it's been a really great cultural development at the university. Uh, and then just to kind of pat Brian on the back because you didn't brag yourself, we've got a really cool new collaboration going on between the Xavier University Theater Department and Cincy Shakes. Uh, it is a five-year-long project wow. that I am happy to be a part of myself. The effort is for students in the theater department to go through Shakespeare's entire canon from beginning to end chronologically, um, according to when he wrote them based on our best guesses. Um, and it's begun this fall. My job is I pop in four times a semester and give a lecture on a play. And then the students spend three weeks working through said play with a director from Cincy Shakes. And on the fourth week, they give a publicly open, freely available reading of the play. So if you've ever secretly desired to read all 38 plays and you don't actually want to do it, you should come listen to the readings. The first one is September 19th. Correct. Directed by Brian himself. Yes, and it is Henry VI, part two. Um, so I'll take that plug and I'll move it to another plug. <laughs> so after Much Ado About Nothing uh, this year, um, we are concluding a history cycle, which we've been working on for five wow. years, starting from to do, go historically chronological, not playwriting chronological, from Richard II all the way to Richard III. So that's Richard II, Henry IV I, Henry IV II, Henry V, Henry VI I, Henry VI II, Henry VI III, Richard III. Those are the plays. We've taken the Henry VI's and we turned three plays into two. We did the first part of that last year and we're finishing it 
this year as it leads straight into Richard III, because the best thing about Henry VI Part Three is that you get to meet Richard III for the first time. Uh, and he's got some great speeches that people don't often get to hear. So if you think, I'd love to come and see that, but I'm not sure, but I missed what happened last year at CSC, you can come hear the reading of Henry VI Part Two at Xavier University to get your background information before finishing the history cycle with mm -hmm. us on stage at 719 Race Street for the last season on Race Street at CSC. How do people find out the dates of those events? Is there a, is it on? Hmm. I, you know, I will, I'm not sure that it's all up on the theater department website, but I will make sure that it goes on the theater department website. So that would be xavier.edu slash theater. Um, I will talk to Steven Skiles and make sure that if it isn't yet, it will be. Yeah, and all of our productions at CSC are on our website at cincyshakes.com. This so. is great. I am going to do our wrap-up now. Thank you both very much for joining us. This, uh, like I said, was fun. I, I do like talking about this book, and my uh, sisters like when I talk about Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us today on The 12th Story. We encourage you to subscribe via your preferred podcast app. We're available on the iTunes Store and on SoundCloud. If you like listening, tell your friends or tweet to us at Mercantile Lib. No, at Mercantile Lib. That's Mercantile L-I-B. My name is John Faraday. Today's podcast was directed and engineered by Chris Messick. Special thanks to our great guest, Brian and Miv. Did I get that right? You did. Okay. You did. You did. Uh, it's my, I'm John O'Neill Faraday. I should know better. Uh, the 12th Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was created by Doug McDermott. Don't forget to visit us online at www.mercantilelibrary.com where you can learn about everything we are doing. Thanks for joining us. Good day. <laughs> <laughs>